Last week as we came to the word of the Lord, we looked at the first of four servant songs that we find in the book of Isaiah. This morning we come to the second of those four songs. Last week's found in chapter 42, this week's found in chapter 49. So if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 49, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, as always, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that through your word you speak to us. That your word is as true now as it was when it was written thousands of years ago. Because you are unchanging. Your truth is unchanging. Father, what was good for the needs of people then is good for us and right and necessary for us now. If we'll be the people that you have called us to be. So we pray now that your spirit would bless us with understanding of your word. Bless us with heart change, with heart transformation that comes as your spirit applies your truth to our hearts. So we submit ourselves to you now and to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Actor Kevin Bacon tells this story about the first time his six-year-old son saw the movie in which he starred called Footloose. His son came and said, Hey, Dad, you know that thing in the movie where you swing from the rafters of that building? That's really cool. How did you do that? I said, Well, I didn't do that part. It was a stuntman. What's a stuntman, he asked. Well, that's someone who dresses like me and does things I can't do. Oh, He replied and walked out of the room, looking a little confused. A little later, he said, Hey, Dad, you know that thing in the movie where you spin around on that gym bar and land on your feet? How did you do that? (laughs) Well, I didn't do that. It was a gymnastics double. What's a gymnastics double, he asked. Well, that's a guy who dresses in my clothes and does things I can't do. There was silence from my son. Then he asked in a concerned voice, Dad, what did you do? I got all the glory, I said sheepishly. You know, that kind of honesty is hard to come by, isn't it? To admit that you can't do something, that someone else has to do it for you. It's especially hard for you and me as believers in Christ to be that honest, to be that humble, 
to admit that there are things in our lives, especially in our relationship with the Lord, that, that we can't do. But it's vitally important for us to understand that. And that's what we see in this passage as we come to it this morning. Look with me, if you will, in verse 3. There God is speaking, and he, he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. You and I have to know who that servant is. Sometimes servant of the Lord in Scripture, even Isaiah, refers to the nation of Israel. That's not the case here. As we'll see in this song, what this servant is going to do to, to bring back Israel... Israel cannot do for themselves. That's the point. Israel, as a nation, they cannot save themselves. They have forfeited their ability to do what the Lord must now do for them. That's back in 48, verse 1. Uh, we read this. L- listen to this, O house of Jacob. You are, who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah. You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel but not in truth or righteousness. I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ear has not been opened. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. How could a nation like this ever save themselves? They were stiff-necked and they were hard-headed. Their ears were in their fingers. Da, 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 da. We won't listen to what you say, Lord. We don't want to hear you. They were not the light of the world to the Gentiles that God had called them to be. They did not act justly or love mercy or walk humbly with God as he had called them to do. They were rebels from birth, insisting on their own way. Interestingly enough, we as a nation were born out of rebellion. And even if that rebellion was justified, nevertheless, we rebelled. And therefore, we are born of a people with a rebel spirit. And sometimes that independent rebel spirit serves us well in life. Sometimes it does. But never, ever, when it comes to our relationship with God. And you and I don't have to look very far around us in our lives, work, school, neighborhood, maybe even our own homes, to find those who are offended by the idea that we need someone else to help us. A stuntman, a gymnastics double. The idea that someone would have to dress up like us, wear our clothes, wear our skin, and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, it's offensive. We don't have a need for God, if he even exists. We don't even need the concept of God. And inasmuch as we believe that, inasmuch as those in our lives believe that, we are deceived as Israel, of long ago, was deceived that they could make it, that they could do it on their own. The servant's coming. The servant described in these verses, the need for him to come is always, always rooted in human failure. The inability of men and women to get it right the inability of men and women to do it right. We cannot save ourselves. No, the servant here in these verses is not the nation Israel. Nor is the servant in these verses any other mere human person or prophet. Though sometimes that too is the case, even in the book of Isaiah. Sometimes the servant of the Lord refers to an individual, but that's not the case here either. 
Because the scope of what this servant will do, literally, save the world, is beyond anything any human could claim to have the ability to do. Especially one who is a prophet of God. Here I am to save the world. No, it wouldn't happen. And so it's the Messiah. It's the person of Jesus Christ that's the servant in this passage. He's the one we see. He's the one we hear. And in each of these servant songs, and as I said, there are four of them, each one of them, there is a spiritual need in the lives of the people that cries out for remedy. If you were here last week, we saw the first servant song. The cry there was for justice, for God to come and and make things as they are supposed to be, to set things right. This week, the great spiritual need is for redirection. It's for restoration. It's for salvation. That's the need we see here. Look with me in verse 5. The servant says in this verse that his purpose is to bring Jacob back to the Lord, to gather Israel to himself. Now look in verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back Israel, those of Israel I have kept. The same Hebrew word is used for restore and to bring back. And this word is used of someone who has shifted in direction from a a particular way to a different direction and then shifted back in the opposite direction again. That's what this word restore or bring back means. For the nation of Israel, the shift came with Abraham. God called him from his home. And God called him leave this land. Leave your way of life. Leave the idols that you have worshipped behind and follow me. Follow me to the land that I will show you. Follow me to the land that I will give you. And scripture says in faith that Abraham believed God. He trusted this one who called him and he followed them. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. But even though God poured out his blessing, the blessings of God himself, he poured out on this people. Though they had been born into this covenant community of faith, they would not follow, they would not obey, they would not serve this one and only true and living God. They turned their direction from him to worship idols that they had made with their own hands. And so the great spiritual cry of these verses is that the servant must come. And remedy is that these people must be restored. They must be brought back. Israel is lost. Israel is heading in the wrong direction. They cannot right themselves. They cannot find their way. Someone must lead them back. And that's the very specific use of this word in verse 5. To bring back or to lead back. The same word is used in Psalm 23. Of the Lord, who is our shepherd. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This servant, Jesus, the good shepherd, with staff in hand, will put his flock, put his people back on the right path, back on the path that leads to God, back on the path that leads to home. That's where we belong. And it isn't just Israel that has this need. 
It isn't as if they suffer from some unique spiritual condition that only exists in the Middle East, as, as if it's Lyme's disease or Rocky Mountain spotted fever that you get from ticks only from a particular area. No, this need isn't specific to them. This need is a, a worldwide need. There's no human being that's ever been born that, that doesn't experience this same need. And that's why the scope of these verses is so sweeping. Look with me in verse 1. It says there, listen to me, you islands. In the book of Isaiah, this term islands is used to refer to the uttermost parts of the world. Listen up, world. We see that confirmed in the second part of the verse. Hear this, you distant nations. And then again in verse 6. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The scope of this servant's mission is absolutely worldwide. The Gentiles, they don't get restoration, they get salvation. They get deliverance because they were never in a relationship with God anyway. They were never on the right path to begin with. And so what they need is salvation, which simply put is God's help. And so they're going to get what they need. They're going to get God's help to put them on the right path, to turn them from their life of futility, turn them toward God. God must act if that's going to happen. Because they, like Israel, like you, like me, we cannot do it for ourselves. We can't. It's beyond us. It can't happen apart from God's help unless he were to dress up like us. And do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And so the restoration and the salvation of the world is the scope of the mission of the servant. No mere human could accomplish that. But guess what? Jesus can. How's he going to do it? How will he accomplish this purpose? How's he going to bring Israel back? How's he going to save the nations? By the word of truth he speaks. Look with me again in verse 1. The servant says there, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to what I speak. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, you remember that, and his face shone and his garments were white and he just radiated the glory of God. When that happened, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to me. Listen to him. This is the servant. Jesus is the servant and his word is his weapon. It's very interesting that John... In his gospel, he doesn't tell the story about Jesus' birth like Matthew and, and, and Luke did. There are no angels, no shepherds, no wise men, no stable, no manger, no baby Jesus. That's not the way John tells us about how Jesus came to earth. John says this, in the beginning was the what? Word. And the word was God. The word was, was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the servant, dressed like us in flesh to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we get all the glory. We get all the benefit. Here he is, the powerful Word of God, the one who will speak the Word, the one who is the Word and he says, listen to me. God showed John a revelation a vision of how everything is going to end in the book of Revelation. And this is part of what he saw. He saw Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. See, the, the continuity of Scripture 
is an absolutely amazing thing to me. It is mind-boggling. The sweep of the, the, the themes of Scripture. No one can make this stuff up. The unity of Scripture in all its parts, written over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. Sometimes it isn't the black and white details, the facts of Scripture that commend its truth. Sometimes it's the implications of, of what Scripture is as a whole. How could it be so tight? How could it be so unified, one part complementing the other when it was written over the course of thousands of years? Here's the answer. Because God wrote it by the power of his Holy Spirit. And because God knew the plan that he had long before he ever told us about it, and so it all makes sense. It isn't as if God is making it up as it goes. We're making a mess and he's trying to fix it. It's not the way it is. The lives of people on earth, every single person, they're not unknown, nor have they ever been a hodgepodge. Your, your life is not some random hodgepodge of events. All life, every life, your life, my life, has a purpose and it fits into God's big plan. And so when the servant says, listen to me, and when God says, listen to my son, what should we do? What should we do? Listen, his life, every part of his life is truth lived out, truth demonstrated for us. Every word from his mouth, truth. You aren't going to find truth like this anywhere else. No other truth compares to the truth of Christ. Complete consistency exists between what he spoke and how he lived. Never a hint of inconsistency. Never a hint of hypocrisy in the life of Christ. Who else can claim that? Who? The continuity of God's truth over thousands of years, written by multiple authors, not to mention the fact that what Scripture says actually comes to pass. You better believe it's true. God's given us every reason to believe that it is true. You don't need to look elsewhere. There's not a person in this room who has not or does not need to be redirected, or restored, or saved. We all need it. You need it. I need it. And only God's servant, and only the truth that he speaks can do that for you in your life. Only his truth is powerful enough. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. God says, So it is with my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This redirection, this restoration, this salvation is available to all who will believe and embrace the spirit and the truth that he speaks to us. Now, as we move on this morning, I want us to see just how badly we need his truth and his restoration And redirection and salvation. Look in verse 4. In verse 4, the servant is speaking. And the servant says this, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. This is the servant, the Messiah, speaking. And here we see the very real humanity of Jesus. Here we see the one that the letter to the Hebrews describes as a great high priest 
who is able to sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way as we are tempted yet without sin. And so he too was tempted to despair. Here we see the one who dressed up like us to do what we could not do, feeling hopeless, feeling in a sense despondent. And so if ever the depth of our need was clear, it's at this point. Because so deep and so grave is our need. So entrenched are we in our sin and determined to go in the opposite direction of God. So entrenched are we in that way that our need to be redirected and restored and saved is such a a battle that is so tough that, that even the servant himself, the Messiah, our Savior, despairs in being able to accomplish it, of being able to get through to us. That's how bad off we are. And so that tells me the despair of this servant, that we can't take our need lightly. We can't take the need of those around us lightly. It is real and it is deep. And because of what he saw, the servant, or what he didn't see when he looked around, the servant felt like he had wasted his time, wasted his strength, in vain that he had come to us. Where do we see it? In the life of Jesus. In the last week of his life between his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and the Last Supper, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Here Jesus' time on earth is nearly up. He has taught and taught and taught. He's done miracle after miracle after miracle. One act of compassion and grace and mercy after another. And still Israel will not believe. Still they seek to kill the one sent to help them. What else could could the Messiah do? What else could Jesus do? Surely the human part of Jesus could say, Why did I bother to come in the upper room? The last night of his life, last supper, Philip, the apostle, says, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. I don't hear anger. In the words of the Lord to Philip, just despair. Even those who are closest to him in his life for three years didn't get it, didn't understand. What then was the point of his true life? What was the point of his true words? And then, of course, there is the cross. Who present at the cross could have thought anything but that the life of Jesus And his ministry had ended in failure and defeat. His enemies had won. What will the miracle worker do now? Now that he is nailed to a cross. And what happened to his followers? 
Those who he gathered around him during his earthly ministry, even those closest to him, his disciples, where were they when he was being crucified? They're not there. They're not at the cross. John alone, of all the disciples, he's the only one present. And so everything appeared, everything seemed to be a failure because human eyes could not at that point see the victory that, that was occurring, that at the very moment while Jesus was dying on the cross, sin, the sin of the world, was being paid for. Even Jesus in his humanity cried from the cross, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Not only did he not see the disciples when he looked down from the cross, they had deserted him, though they claimed they never would, but he said of his Father, Where are you, my God? And so all the evidence points, shouts, failure. And so we read again in verse 4, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing yet. 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 What, what is due me is in the Lord's hands and my reward is with my God. John Oswald in his commentary writes this. Too often we miss the two-sidedness of what's being said here. On the one hand, we think that to admit feelings of futility is not to trust God. On the other hand, we often believe that if we really trust God, we would never have feelings of futility. The servant shows us that neither reality is incompatible with the other. Trust has ultimately to do with the final outcome. And of this, the servant is fully confident. It is God, the God who called him, equipped him, and is using him who will make the final adjudication concerning the servant's work. God, not the world, not even the servant, will make the final decision concerning the worth of, of that work. And what was that decision? <laughs> satisfied. God, completely satisfied with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so what appears to be true is not always reality. Things appear hopeless. The reality is that God has a plan that he's working out. And in the midst of despair and despondency, the servant remembers that. He remembers the Lord. He remembers what the Lord has done for him. How he's prepared him. The sword of his mouth. Like a, like a polished arrow with complete accuracy that will find and hit its mark because it's been polished free from any dent or, or, or divot or anything that would veer it from its course. Look in verse 5. Why be in despair? The Lord formed me in the womb for this purpose. The entirety of my life created for this purpose. Bringing back Jacob, restoring Israel. Why be in despair? Verse 5 says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. Why be in despair? God has been my strength. And so no reason exists to be in despair when the strength of the Lord is behind any endeavor. And conversely, nothing but complete despair if the Lord is set against you. And so no matter what evidence suggests itself to the contrary, whatever shouts even to the servant, failure, loser, give up, it's hopeless. It's not ultimate reality in the light of the purpose and the power of the Lord. You and I will be in despair. We may even be despondent when we look to our own strength. When we assess any situation that's before us from our perspective and our power, 
Our hope comes when we look to the Lord. When we remember, as the servant remembered, that he is sovereign over all things. We remember his purpose, his power, and our position. We too, like Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, honored by the Lord. And so when you and I fix our eyes on those realities, as opposed to what looks like reality reality to us, then we have hope. And look what the servant says here. The Lord has been my strength. All along. Even when it didn't look like reality. Even when it didn't feel like reality. Even when the servant couldn't see it. The Lord was his strength. There is no reason for despair in our lives. No reason for despondency as long as we can say, Yet the Lord. Whatever it looks like. Yet, the Lord. We can look around at the ashes around us, the brokenness. We can say, I've done all I can do. What's the point? There's nothing left for me to do. It's useless. Yet, the Lord. Yet, the Lord is a reality. Yet, the Lord is at work. Yet, the Lord will work everything together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Yet, the Lord, dressed up like us, did the things that we could not do for ourselves, Redirect us, restore us, save us. How can he do it? Verse 7, this is what the Lord says. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word of truth. Father, we thank you that what we have read is written by you, inspired by your Holy Spirit as you worked through the authors of Scripture to communicate your truth to us. Thank you now for this picture of the servant, for you, Lord Jesus, and what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal your humanity to us. You are 100% God, but 100% human at the same time. And so we can relate to you and you can relate to us. We thank you, Lord, that you put before our eyes uh, this model. When there's despair, when there's hopelessness, we fix our eyes on the Lord and who he is and his power and his purpose and who he has made us to be and gifted us to be and called us to be. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We thank you that you did dress up just like us. You took, being God, the form of a human. You put on flesh and blood and skin. You dressed up like us because we couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves and you had to come and do it for us. So we thank you. We praise you for that. As we come to your table now, Lord, We're reminded of that reality. Your humanity is displayed before us. The body, your body, broken for us. Your blood shed for us. Because we couldn't do it. And you had to. And you willingly and lovingly and graciously and mercifully and compassionately did it. So I give you thanks and praise with great humility. In Jesus' name. Amen.